Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. If you can't preach after that, you, you can't preach. Um, praise God. Mm. The music was beautiful. The sound of Ricky's voice is glorious. But the truth of those words are spectacular. Are they not? Oh, praise God. Praise God. Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in front of you, and you can keep that Bible as your own. Romans 3 is, is on page 737 or page 940, and we are working our way through this letter of Paul to the church in Rome that we call the book or letter of Romans. So if you're just joining us for the first time today, you may be a little bit behind, but don't fret, you will be caught up. You will quickly understand the context of, of what's going on in Romans 3 as we, as we work through this text. I'm going to read Romans 3, verses 1 through 8 in just a second, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through this. And I think there really are two, there's lots going on in this text. I think there are really two truths that I want us to hang our, our hearts on this morning. But first, a question to orient us to the message that really flows out of that beautiful song that, that Ricky led us in. Can God be trusted? Can he be relied upon? Is his word and his way, is it true? Is it faithful? That's the question, the objection that Paul is answering here in Romans 3, and it comes on the heels of what he has finished saying in Romans chapter 2. Now, the point of Romans 1, 2, and the first half of Romans 3 is really to indict all of humanity. Paul is leveling the playing field, and he's saying that all humanity, whether Gentile or Jew, which is everybody, whether they have the natural law of the universe written on their hearts and should know that there's a God but suppress that truth, or whether they have the written law of God given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament and they disobey it, all people are by nature and by choice guilty and justly deserving God's wrath. This has brought an objection from the Jews and they say, well, if we, as God's chosen people in the Old Testament, are, are not right with God, then what hope is there for anybody? And if God has promised us in the Old Testament to save us, to redeem us, these wonderful promises of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament, if we can't be saved, then what are we to make of those promises that God gave us in the Old Testament where he said that he would save us? Which brings up, I think, the legitimate question, can God be trusted? And that's the question Paul takes up in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Let me read it and pray, and then we'll work through it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. Well, several commentators mentioned as I was preparing, preparing for today that this little block, this little portion of Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, is some of the most difficult to understand and complicated in the whole Bible, in, in the whole letter. And I thought, oh, goodness, I didn't anticipate that. So I kind of had to hunker down and, and uh, grind it out. So um, let's pray for God's help to understand what Paul's saying to us and the objections that he's, he's responding to. Father, we come to you humbly, wanting our, our minds and our hearts to line up with the things that we have sung and heard already. You indeed are faithful. Jesus, you are better. And only you can make our hearts believe as we have sung together. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are trusting in Christ that you would line our affections up with the things that we know doctrinally to be true. Let them be actually true in our lives. Let our hearts agree with our minds and let it inform the actions of our hands. And for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, Lord, the clear message of the gospel, the clear message of the Bible, the clear message of Romans is that we as sinful humanity are completely dependent on you to do what only you can do for you to sovereignly, graciously change a dead heart and make it alive so that it can behold the beauty and the wonder and the sufficiency of your son Jesus who took your wrath on a cross for your people, extinguished it, removed it, and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and now gives life to all that you have given him. Lord, we are dependent on that alone. And I pray that today in this service that by your grace you might call dead hearts to life through the power of your Holy Spirit as the gospel is explained and Jesus becomes real. Lord, do this for your glory and our joy and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So two truths that I think that we can condense these eight verses down to. The first one is this and it's just going to build on the screen as we work through. The first is that God is faithful, utterly faithful, even as we've just heard sung to us. God is faithful to his promises. That's the point that Paul is making to these objections that he is handling here. And, and this, this uh, oratory device that Paul is using in Romans 3, and he uses much throughout the letter, it's called a diatribe. It means that Paul is, is answering objections that he knows his, his audience may have of him. And he starts one of those diatribes, those sort of internal conversations with himself here in Romans chapter 3. So let's look at verse 1 again. He says in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? So realize that this question in verse 1 is coming on the heels of what he's just got done saying in Romans chapter 2. So if you weren't with us uh, for the past few weeks in Romans chapter 2, Paul ended that chapter by basically saying that all Jews are, are guilty before God. And that comes on the heels of Romans chapter 1, where Paul is saying that all Gentiles... All people, that's the argument of Romans 1, 2, and 3, that all people stand guilty before God. And at the end of Romans chapter 2, Paul in particular is taking aim at Jewish people who thought that they were right with God merely because they had the law, merely because they were circumcised as a, an expression of obedience to the law. And Paul makes the, the really the scandalous point at the end of, chapter one, end of chapter two that circumcision, this cutting away of the exterior of a very sensitive part of the flesh, has no value if it's merely external. In fact, Paul radically redefines what it means to be a Jew or a person of God saved by God, who's trusting in God. And he says that a true Jew is not somebody whose flesh has be merely been cut away, but whose heart has been circumcised. 
So, in other words, a Gentile who's not been physically circumcised and doesn't have the physical law, but yet obeys God and trusts in Jesus, can truly be a true Jew, whereas an ethnic Jew who has been circumcised and maybe observes some external sense the law, but whose heart is far away from God, isn't truly a Jew. And so Paul radically redefines here, this would have been incredibly controversial. He's now saying that what it means to be Jewish is not bound up in your ethnicity and in any external thing that's happened to you, but all along in the Old Testament, these external realities of the law and circumcision, which is a picture of obedience to the law, are actually pointing to the heart and this true obedience, this true spiritual Jewness, this true spiritual standing with God, which now upends the Jewish concept of what it means to be safe, to be the people of God. And so the objection is clearly, well, then what value is being ethnically Jew? And in verse 2, we might expect Paul to answer the objection and say, you're right, there is no value in being Jew, ethnically. But he actually goes the other way. So in verse 2 he says, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews, and here, really for the rest of of Romans, we're going to need, depending on the context, to determine whether when Paul uses the word Jew or Israelite, to understand, again, depending on the context, whether Paul is referring to ethnic Jews or true spiritual Jews. So you see the distinction. An ethnic Jew is obviously somebody who is a descendant, physically, of the Israel of the nation of Israel, whereas this new category of people that Paul has introduced at the end of Romans chapter 2 is a person who is truly trusting in Jesus, whether they are ethnically Jew or Gentile, now a true Jew. So in verse 2, he says, much in every way. To begin with, the ethnic Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul's response is, and again we'd expect him to say, you're right, there isn't any advantage to being an ethnic Jew, but he doesn't say that. He says, actually, there's great advantage to being an ethnic Jew. Why, Paul? Because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what is this phrase, the oracles of God? Well, I think clearly it includes the, the written word of God at this point, just the Old Testament, which was meant to be a kind of tutor a kind of schoolmaster that would draw Israel not to confidence in themselves, but this law and the instruction of the Old Testament was meant to draw Israel into confidence in God and not in themselves. It was meant really to bring them to a point where they would realize that they could never obey God's law as God has intended. So it was meant to cause them to look outside of themselves to the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament, to the true Jew, the only one true Jew, Jesus, who would come and fulfill the law for them. But it didn't. It caused them to take pride in their ethnicity or in their status as the covenant people of God. And Paul says that, well, you had the word of God. That was of great advantage. But this phrase, the oracles of God, really means more than just the the actual physical written word of God. I think it also embedded in that concept is the promise of God within the Old Testament, the promise of God to save Israel. And so Paul is saying that, that is not, that has not gone away. There's, there's a promise there that God will save his people. And I think at this point, Paul is picking up on something that he's going to pick up in uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is going to handle the objection that if all of the Jewish people, not all of them, but most of them, have rejected Christ, Did God fail in his promises to ethnic Israel? And that's the objection that we see in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Not just some, but really many. The majority of the Jews rejected Jesus. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness 
of God. So do you see the, uh, the objection that Paul is dealing with here? He's dealing with the ethnic Jew who's saying, God has promised us these things. And you're saying, Paul, now that those promises don't depend on our ethnicity and the fact that we have the law and the circumcision. And so now what are you saying, Paul, that what it means to be truly Jew, it means to be something inward, heart, heartfelt, spiritual, it means obedience in Christ. Well, what about God's promises to us as a nation? What's going on there? And Paul is saying there in verse 4, he's really answering the objection, has God failed? In other words, can God be trusted? And here in verse 4, he just introduces the beginning of the argument that we're going to hunker down in for a while when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. And Paul's argument is, no, by no means. Verse 4, God has not failed. But he doesn't really go into the explanation of why. In fact, Romans 3 verses 1 through 8 is just a kind of, he's just establishing a line of reasoning that he's going to explain in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, we'll get there in about a year. But remember, <laughs> remember that this was a letter that was written that would really would have been read in one setting. In fact, that would be a wonderful thing for some of us to do. Just, just have a Romans reading party. Just do that in your community groups or whatever. Just in, in, meet somebody uh, new today. Invite them to lunch. Say, hey, let's go to, I was about to say Fuddruckers, but they're out of business. Let's go to Subway and get a meatball sandwich. And let's go to my house and read Romans out loud together for the balance of the afternoon. That would be awesome, by the way. But Paul is introducing something that, we're going to take a while to get in, but you can read this afternoon later of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And Paul's point in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that God has always had a purpose. And that purpose was never merely bound up in an ethnicity, in the Jewish people. But even God forming an ethnic people in the Old Testament... Salvation was never by the flesh, but it's always been by faith. And even the faith that Abraham had, not because he was the first Jew, but because he had faith given to him by God, Abraham is saved by his faith that God gave to him as a gift, not because he's circumcised and not because he's Jewish. And so Paul is just giving us a kind of beginning point just a tidbit of his argument that he will develop in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that salvation comes from God's sovereign, divine election. In other words, God will save who he will save, whether Jew or Gentile, not based on their Jewness, not based on their good works, but by, based on God's purpose in grace. And he doesn't give us any more in this particular portion of Scripture. He just says, by no means. And that emphatic nature there in the original Greek, it would be kind of like Paul. Just It would be the most emphatic way that he could say no. In fact, I was so, I just almost, I had a little hallelujah party in my office as I was reading this. There was a commentator that wrote about verse 4. And he was trying to equate the ways that this phrase in Greek by no means is, is, is the sense of that verb there is, is, is used in other cultures. And so he said in Greek it would be the most emphatic uh, way. So he would say like, and he actually used this example. He would say like if you were part of an Italian family and you said something egregious and the grandfather stood up and said, forget about it. <laughs> it was in the commentary. <laughs> My people being represented in the... <laughs> no way, Paul says. God is not unfaithful. He has not failed. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, the promises that God made in the Old Testament were not dependent on human fidelity. They were not dependent on human obedience. If that were the case, 
it would undermine the gospel of grace that Paul preaches in the New Testament. Do you see what Paul is setting up here? He doesn't really get into it in Romans 3, but believe me, we're going to get into Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. He's setting up the most controversial truth in Romans, and it is the truth that nobody is saved by their own ability or choice, but by God's pure, unmerited, divine, sovereign choice. And he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And he's quoting Psalm 51, verse 4 there. What's interesting about that is that's a portion of David's psalm where David is repenting before God for his great sin. And it's interesting there because in Psalm 51, verse 4, uh, David is saying, God, you are justified when you judge me, and you prevail when you judge me. But here, as Paul quotes, at least the translation of the text that we have in Psalm 54, verse 1, is interpreted in the New Testament, it seems like God is the one being judged, that you may be justified in your words, God, and prevail when you are judged. In other words, Paul kind of uses that verse 4 of Psalm 51 And he flips it evidently as if God now is the one being judged by humanity. That's an interesting little, I'm sure there's some textual things going on there. But God will prevail and be justified in his justice and in his faithfulness when humanity says to him, how can you be good and true and faithful when this is the way you save? So how does God save? Before we move on to just a couple points of application, as Paul will lay out in the rest of Romans, friends, this is the gospel. God does not save according to human ability. Nobody's saved if they're a Gentile because they have good intentions, because they're basically moral people. Nobody's saved if they're Jewish because they are part of the covenant community by the flesh. Nobody's saved if they keep most of the law. Nobody's saved if they are circumcised. All humanity is guilty. Every person is a liar. But God is faithful because a great multitude of people have been saved. How have they been saved? They've been saved because God sent his son Jesus to be the one true obedient Jew to live the life that no Jew and no Gentile has ever lived in complete complete obedience to God than to lay down his perfect life on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for the sin of all those that he would ever call to himself and raise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now he gives his righteousness. Now he imputes his righteousness to the Jew or the Gentile, to whosoever will call upon him, and he removes their sin. So God, in saving humanity, hasn't just shaken the etch-a-sketch and say, ah, that didn't work out. You know, I had this law, thought it would work out, but it didn't work out. So let me just conk some people over the head and say, you know, you're saved and you're not. No, the way God does it is he sends Jesus, who's been promised in the Old Testament law, to be the one law-abiding sacrifice for all that would trust in him. So God's justice is not erased, but it's satisfied as Jesus bears the penalty that should have been all of ours, and he absorbs it, he extinguishes it, and he rises again in victory and now gives us righteousness. Now the way God saves is he looks upon those that Jesus has made alive And they have his righteousness. And now God is faithful. He's faithful to his word in the Old Testament. He's faithful to his own just and righteous nature. And he's faithful to save. A couple points of application here on God being faithful to his promise in these first few verses. Just some points of application to us. The first is this. With advantage comes responsibility. And we can put that up on the screen. With advantage comes responsibility. The Jews clearly had an advantage. They had the word of God. And we too, 
just to sort of draw some application to our lives as Christians in the Bible Belt South, we have a great advantage. We have the Word of God. There are people next week, I can't wait. When, when, a couple years ago when I met Kaushal Kale, instantly I thought, I want this brother to come to Crosspoint to, to, I want people to hear from this brother who is pastoring a faithful church in a part of the world where there are a billion people and there's just a fraction of that population that are Christians. And in Kashal City in Kalapur, the, the, the false gods of Hinduism and, and all of the other uh, things that are going on in India are all around. And he is pastoring a faithful congregation. And I want us to hear from this brother who's grown up in a context and who pastors a church in a context that does not have the advantages that we do. So that it might humble us and spur us on to understand our responsibility. We have a great advantage as a church. We have great advantages as Christians in America. We have, most of us have great advantages as individuals in our context. Oh, that we would, with that advantage, understand our responsibility. And would we be chastened by the example of God's people in the Old Testament and how they failed and that we would not fail in our great advantage. The, 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 the plethora of resources that we have at our fingertips, is, it's just an embarrassment of riches. In fact, we, we have sent Kaushal Kale to this training up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in uh, Washington, D.C., where he's doing this pastoral training. And because of your generosity, he's been able to come to India. And at, he's at this training up in D.C. right now, and he'll join us later this week. And, and uh, we, we bring books to him every time we go. And, and, and when you just bring one book to Kashal and the other pastors there. Just one good, solid theological book. It's like you just gave them a pot of gold. And we have a plethora of resources. I don't say that to scold us. I say that to encourage us, to say, let's, let's be people that, that bear this advantage with great responsibility. And then second application here is that, secondly, God can be trusted. God God. That's the point, I think, of Romans, 1, Romans 3, 1 through 4. God can be trusted. What's the application to us? Well, in the Old Testament, when Israel was being punished for their sins, and they were being carried away by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians, God raised up a prophet, Isaiah, to warn them about the coming doom that would hit them. And then to also comfort them, to tell them that even though this has happened to you as a result of your faithlessness to me, I will not forsake you. Even though you live in a broken world that in many parts has come upon you because of your own sin, I will not leave you. And listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah to Israel in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 43. And let it, let it, let it be a word to us this morning as, as we may be wavering with whether or not God can be trusted in our situation. This is what... Isaiah 43, verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That was a word to Old Testament Israel, to the ethnic people of Israel, that are a kind of shadow of the reality in the New Testament that we see is true Israel, those that have faith in Christ. And so if we are truly Jew, in other words, we're trusting in Jesus, I don't think that we're making a, a theological error by taking this promise of Isaiah 43, 1 through 2, and in some sense applying it to our lives. So the word that he speaks to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, in a spiritual sense, applies to the spiritual Israelite, those who are trusting in Jesus in the New Testament. So if that's the case, this is written to us as well, because we are grafted into the people of 
God truly by faith in Jesus. So when we pass through the waters, God will be with us. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm us. We'll walk through the fire and not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. However, as glorious as that promise is, we should not take this as a promise that it will be fulfilled in an earthly sense all the time in our lives. Because quickly, we need to flip to Hebrews chapter 11, which we won't do, where Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is, is saying that these great people of faith, these, these people who trusted in God and trusted in his promises, some of them did great things, and others of them, because of their faith, were sawn in two. And so the promise that God will be with us is not a promise that we will get out of every earthly predicament. It is a promise that God will ultimately and finally gather his people and bring them safely home. It's the promise that God will not forsake his people. It's not a promise that these 80 years will go well for us. It's a promise that he will lose none of those whom he has saved. And friends, so much, so much of understanding the Bible and interpreting it rightly depends on us understanding the eternal perspective of the Christian life. And so much of the error that we see in the Christian church today is because they wrongly interpret these promises of God's grace and faithfulness to his people, and they take too much of eternity and try and bring it into the earthly. That's the error of the prosperity gospel. They look at these promises in the Old Testament, and they... They make them tangible and earthly when the point of them is meant to be spiritual and eternal. So friends, this informs so much, right? Because we, we kind of pride ourselves on being people that have good theology. But the point is, is that some of us will maybe die this year. Some of us will go through great tragedy in this life. Some of us will pass through earthly waters and we will drown. Some of us will be consumed by an earthly temporary fire. Does that mean that God is unfaithful? By no means is the message of Paul. Because he wants to lift our eyes above these 80 years and to put us on an eternal trajectory that promises us not just our best life now, but the life to come, friends. Do you see that, friends? Understanding that will save you from a thousand theological errors. And it anchors us in this reality that God can be trusted, but we cannot define God's faithfulness merely by temporal comforts. Oh, that that would sink in our hearts. I mean, that, that is, oh gosh, we, we, need to, we need to know that and need to fight to help one another to understand that. Because I believe that. I believe that. But you just give me a dose of difficulty and I can forget about it real, real easy-like, right? That's why we, come on now, we need each other. You can't hold on to that anchor on your own. Christian, I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how well theologically informed you are, your flesh and your mind is weak and you can't hold on to that anchor by yourself. The storms are too fierce. The winds are too high, man. The waves are too thick. We got to hold on to this together because we will all wonder at some point, God, can you be trusted? And we will all try and appropriate those eternal realities into a temporal guarantee. And it never works that way. All right, I'm, I'm spending too much time on that, but I got juiced up. Let's go. The second truth, verses five through eight, a little bit quicker, Lord willing, and it is this, that God is righteous in judging sinners. I think that's the second truth of this, of this passage. So Paul continues, okay, and he's handling this objection that's come out of what he, he's really just said, and he's just said that God's sovereign in saving people. He has a people, 
And he saves him not because they're ethnically Jew or Gentile. He saves him by his grace through the work of his son. That's embedded in everything that we just read in verses 1 through 4. Now the objection is in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, so this is Paul speaking as if he is an objecting ethnic Jew. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then in parentheses, because he just can't stand that, I mean, he just wants to sort of divest it. He, he doesn't want to be associated with that reasoning. Just to clarify, this is not me speaking. He says, I speak in a human way. So he's, he's, he's giving voice to the objection that he's handling. Do you see that? So here's the logic of the objection that Paul has voiced in verse 5. The logic is that God has promised to be faithful to Israel and save them by divine election. And we've just realized, Paul, that what it means to be a true Jew or true Israel isn't about our flesh, but it's about the circumcision of the heart. And only God can give us a new heart. So if we're completely dependent on God, then... That nullifies God's right to judge Israel. In other words, if we're unrighteous and we can't do anything about it, how can God inflict wrath on us? If salvation is by God's grace alone and not by our Jewness or man's effort or by external circumcision, then how can God rightly Judge us is the thinking of verse 5. Do you see that? It's the same question. I just couldn't resist. We have to go to Romans 9. It's the same question and objection that Paul will develop a little bit further in Romans 9. So let's get a preview of our sermon in a year from Romans 9. Look at Romans 9. It'll be up on the screen, but I think it'd be good for you to flip. One of the best things you can do is flip in your own Bible. In fact, I, I bought another Bible, and it's in the mail, hopefully being shipped to me, because this one's kind of falling apart. And, you, you know, when you like, you know, and it's not, it's not this exact same Bible, because it's got larger font, <laughs> which, come on, I need it. But the problem is, is everything's not going to be like where it is on the page. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through like a couple months of like discombobulate. I'm going to be shaky. I'm just, I'm just preparing you for that when it comes. But you need to know, like it's just helpful to flip. I mean, look at the screen. That's really for people who aren't familiar with their Bibles. Come on, one of the best ways, things you can do for your own spiritual growth is to see it. Romans 9 verse 14, here's the objection. And Paul gives more voice to it in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Romans 9 verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? And where's that objection coming from? It's coming from what Paul has just said in the preceding verses where he's saying, hey look, let me give you a picture of how salvation works. There was these two twins in the Old Testament in the womb, Jacob and Esau. And God, not because of anything good done by either one of them, but solely because of his grace, chose Jacob and passed over Esau. And that causes Paul's objector in Romans 9 to ask the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, he repeats. For he says to Moses, now he's going to another analogy, back in Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen to verse 16. So then it, meaning salvation, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Do you see the objection that Paul is handling here in verse 5 of Romans 3? It's blown up for us in a bigger way in Romans 9, but the 
the logic is this, is that if salvation is purely by God's work and not my own, and I am by nature a sinner, then is God righteous in judging me? And Paul doesn't even really answer it philosophically. He just establishes the right of the potter to do what he wants with the clay. Friends, Let's just admit how much we, as Americans that have been raised on the faulty notion that we are the captains of our own soul and that we are free autonomous creatures that can do whatever we want and God is merely reacting to us. Let's just admit how much we, by nature, resist that truth. Can we? I, I, I believe it. I believe it, I still, years after seeing it, wrestle with it. But it's there. It's there. And it's humbling. And the Jews were objecting to it. And Paul, <laughs> Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't get into a philosophical tit-for-tat tiptoe game with it. He just says, God will do what he will do. Because he's God. And then in verse 6, he deepens the argument because he's anticipating that the Jews are going to say, well, how can, how can he judge us? And Paul says again, by no means... For even though salvation is all of the Lord, he judges you, Jew. For then how could he judge, for then how could God judge the world? In other words, Paul's response is, if that were the case that God had no right to judge you, which he does, then God would have no grounds in judging the Gentiles or the world. So the point is, all stand guilty before God. None is righteous. No, not one. And God who is the potter is right to do whatever he wants and he can judge the clay. He can make one pot for honor, it says in Romans 9, and he can make one pot for dishonor and he can call one honorable and one dishonorable because, friends, Take this truth in. Let it humble you. Let it give you a big view of God because he's God. Now there's much more that we will need to say about the mystery of God's divine election. There's much more that we will say when we get to that. But at this point in Romans 3, Paul is just establishing the point that God is faithful and God is righteous. And then in verses 7 and 8, we end with this, then that old little lie of what's called antinomianism, meaning against the law, which is this theological error that says, well, if, if God has saved us by his grace, if salvation is nothing that we do and it's all grace and it's nothing that I do, well, then I can just live however I want. And it's the theological error, again, called antinomianism against the law or against the commands of God. It's cheap grace. Verse 7 and 8. But, and here's the objection. He, again, he's speaking as if he is his Jewish objector. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not? Here's the reasoning. Verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying he's giving voice to the objection. Well, if God's going to save who he's going to save, and if he's saved us, let's just do whatever he wants so that more, whatever we want, so that more grace may abound out of our evil. Why not sin? that grace may abound. And Paul's going to hammer that in Romans chapter 6. He's going to say, no, you're misunderstanding salvation. 
To be saved means that God has made you alive. He's given you a new heart, not because of anything good in you, but because of his sovereign grace. Now he takes your dead, disobedient, unbelieving heart, and he implants a new heart, a new creation, and with a new heart comes new desires to obey him for his glory so that through your life, he might use your life to be a witness to be, which he uses to draw other people to his sovereign grace. And so through our new heart, we are now enabled to obey God in ever increasing ways. So the person who says, I can continue doing whatever I wanted to do like I did before I was a Christian, and now it's just all about grace, gives, is telling the, the, is telling the reality that they haven't really received a new heart. And Paul is saying you're misunderstanding salvation. God, by sovereign grace, gives people life through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And now they are enabled to bring glory to God as they fight sin and live for his glory in obedience to his way. That's the gospel. Two applications very quickly. Is this any teaching? I don't have time to develop this. I'm just going to throw it up there on the screen for you. Any teaching that leads us to think that we can live however we want is false. And let me just tell you pastorally people that believe what many of us in this room believe about God's sovereign grace and election are very prone to this error. Because we have so majored on God's grace and not our works in salvation that we don't rightly see that the truth of salvation is that although we are saved not by our works but by God's grace through his son Jesus, we after salvation are enabled to follow him in good works. Do you see that? We put such an emphasis on free grace that we... We look over all of the imperatives of Scripture that say that we should live in ever-increasing, sanctifying, obeying God ways. That's the Christian life. Which leads us to the second application that true grace, true grace not only pardons sin, it enables us to fight it. And friends, that's the Christian life. Who, 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 can, who can do that on their own? Man, who? Nobody. I, I, I know I can't. Who can see these truths, who can be humbled by God's sovereign grace, who can put all of their hope in God to save them, and then realize that God has given us a new heart so that we might obey him and still be left in this world where storms come and we walk through fires and floods metaphorically and we're tattered and thrown to and fro by a wicked culture and by some of the old man that still resides in us because although we've been made new we still have this residue of sin that lives in us how like how can we do these things and see these things and obey these things on our own we can't we need each other we need the power of God's word we need the reality that God has filled us with his Holy Spirit that enables us to mortify or to kill our old man. And we need to do it in gritty, honest, grace-filled, compassionate community where we know one another's names and where this is a safe place to not be okay. But it's not a place where it's okay to just continue to be not okay. And be okay with it. I thoroughly confused you and myself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You see the line? The church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. That's the gospel. We're not saved by our okayness. We're saved by God's grace through the work of his son. But the flip side of that is that it's not a place to just stay Stuck in not being okay. We fight for each other. We know each other. We, we get to know people's names. We join the church. We meet with a pastor. We explain the gospel. We, we get in community. We serve. We, we do a thousand other points of application that I don't have time to get into today. But that's, that's, that's the Christian life. 
Let's pray. Father, your word says that you are true, but every man is a liar. Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who alone gives mercy. Our flesh hates this truth because we want to prove ourselves. We, we by nature, want to be able to point to our merit and say, look what I did. Lord, by your grace, would you divest us of that heretical fallacy? Would you burn that demonic error from our hearts and our minds? Would you humble us? Would you back us into a corner where we are by your grace, by your gentle but persistent, irresistible grace, forced to admit for our good and your glory that we cannot save ourselves. Not if we're born in the church, raised in the best family, having all of the advantages, just like the ethnic Jews who were putting their hope in the temple or in the circumcision or in the tabernacle or whatever. Lord, those things will not save us. Lord, by your gracious, kindly spirit, would you back us into a corner where we finally let go of anything that we can do and throw ourselves at your feet, crying out mercy. And then would you, by your grace, enable us to see that salvation is the beautiful gift of a new heart whereby we are enabled to bring glory to you as we live together in spirit-filled, word-centered community, fighting sin together for the glory of God so that in your kindness, you might use our lives together to be a witness that you use by your sovereign means to draw other people to faith in Christ. Lord, do this, I pray. Lord, help us with these truths. May we respond to them and worship you rightly in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.